open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I know I've shared with you in the past a, a moment in my life I'll never forget. I was a young pastor just starting out in ministry and at the church uh, where I was serving. We would do Q&A like we used to do in our old building here even at Faith Community Church. And on one particular night, um, the um, questions were a little thin and uh, not a lot of people uh, asking questions, except for just off to my right, my four-year-old son raising his hand to the sky. And of course, you know, as a dad, uh, you can imagine all the horrible things that you think he might say, and so I am uh, forestalling as long as I could, but he's the only guy with his hand in the air. And there um, wasn't a lot going on, so eventually I called on him and asked him, well, Son, what is your question? And he said to me, still the best question that I think I've ever had in a Q&A. He said, how can I stop sinning? Well, I, you know, I stumbled and bumbled around for a little bit and uh, trying to give him a concise and a, uh, a, a something of a, a helpful answer for a four-year-old mind and for the congregation. But I took him to Romans chapter 6. Because the question coming from the lips of a four-year-old or a 40-year-old or an 80-year-old, this chapter answers all of them. It answers us where we are when we ask ourselves, whether or not in public or in private, why do I keep on sinning? Why does this continue to be such a struggle for me? Can I have any hope of really ever having any victory? Why is it that some people seem to sometimes progress in their spiritual walk and maybe, maybe I don't? Why if sin has no more power over me, why sometimes do I feel overpowered by it? That's the way we might phrase the question, but it's all the same thing. It's all the question of why, why would we continue to sin? Paul's answering that. He's answering it not necessarily from the, 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 the positive uh, sort of uh, genuine appeal of a, of a believer, but in this particular case, in verse 1 of chapter 6 of Romans, Paul is answering it, if you will, from a detractor, from, from an accuser, from someone who would suggest and someone who would claim that his gospel of free forgiveness in Christ or his gospel of justification by faith as we've defined it going through the book of Romans, that gospel which says that there's nothing that you do which can in any way add to your standing before God. There's nothing that you could ever perform or accomplish that could ever uh, lay claim to anything before God. That gospel of free forgiveness is the very way in which we're saved, the only way we're saved. There's nothing you do, nothing you can add that will ever change any of that in God's mind. It's all in the work of Christ. Well, people picked up this, as we've noted in the past, and used it in an accusatory way against Paul and against his message. And Paul, if you will, uh, takes up their taunt or picks up their accusation in verse 1 and restates it for the sake of argument. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we as believers... Are we who believe in justification by faith, are we who believe that grace in Christ is the way of salvation, does that just 
then therefore mean that we are going to continue on in a life of sin with no consequences or no need to pursue righteousness? That's the gist of, of the question. And you remember Paul gives in verse 2 this profound answer that becomes the backbone of his entire exposition, if you will, of the doctrine of sanctification. When he simply says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who have died to that old way of life still live in it? And he lays out this paradigm that answers that question of whether or not we should continue to sin and really answers the question of how we stop from sinning. And it is this, you, if you are a believer, you have died to that old life of sin. That's why sin is no longer sovereign in your life. That's why when you battle with sin, you understand that you are the victor of it. You died to it. And you remember that sort of nugget of truth then launches Paul in a sequence of logical steps that he takes from there, launching off of that, spelling out for us, if you will, built on that foundation, seven reasons why you and I who are in Christ will not pursue sin, but we will pursue righteousness instead. Seven reasons why we won't continue in sin. We won't live in sin, he says in verse 2, obviously, because we, we died to it. We died to it. But then he tells us in verse 3, we died to sin because we have been baptized into Christ. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were identified with him. Metaphorically, we were baptized, if you like, not into water, but into Christ. Then in verses 3 and 4, We were baptized into Christ, meaning we were baptized into His death. Because of our identification, metaphorically in baptism, we legally take our stand with Christ in His death. We are united with Him, not just in fellowship and not just in some relational way, but we are united with Him in His legal condemnation for us. Paul's telling us in this chapter, when Christ died, we died with Him. We were united with Him in His death. Which means, uh, fourthly, in verses 4 and 5, since we were baptized into His death, we also experience resurrection in the new life. You can't, as we said last week, you can't have a resurrected life until there's a death. It wouldn't make sense to say you're resurrected until you first died. And so without a death to the old life, to the old body, if you will, the body of sin as he calls it here, uh, uh, until you have that, you can't have resurrected life. But because of that, because our old life died, we can now experience resurrected life. We were buried by baptism into death. He says, in order that, in order that, Just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. And the point is, if the burial was certain, then the resurrection will also be certain. If the old life has indeed passed away, then the new life will surely and will certainly come. 
There's a, a newness, as we said last week, in who you are, in your heart and in your mind and in your affections and in your joys and in all those things because of this. And then Paul says, moving on from there, you'll not continue in sin because in verse 6, since we died and are resurrected, we're no longer slaves to sin. He uses that phrase in verse 6, the body of sin, which is done away with, the body of sin, uh, sort of a metaphor for the old life. He uses that word body because he's raising the image of a crucifixion. And so what he's saying is, you crucified that old life. You crucified the body of it, if you will. This is the same as the old self that he's talking about here. We mentioned this last week. This isn't a reference to some, some uh, uh, dualistic idea of you as if you have a, a two personalities at war and at conflict within you. If that was the case, then sure, you might very well sin. But Paul's saying the reason you won't sin is because the old self is crucified. The old self is dead. The old self is long gone. So those of us who are believers... Those of us who are, who are in Christ, our life, our perspective now is, is divided into two halves. We, we look at our life, as we look back across the long years of our life, we look at that part of our life up until the time of Christ as the old self. And that old self and that old life were crucified, that were put away, as Paul says in this passage, And at that point when we came to Christ, the new self was raised. The new self was united together with Christ in his resurrection. And what Paul's telling you is that because of that reality, because as you look back across the time of your your life and you look back at those, those two halves, that old half is gone. It went away. And if you're a believer here today, it's as if you've lived two lives. If you're a believer here today and you look back across the years of your life, it's as if you were two people. And you can testify to that. I've said that often, many times. I mean, I came to know Christ when I was 17 years old. It's like I don't even remember those 17 years. My life has been so rich. My life has been so full. My life has been so meaningful ever since then. I mean, I can, I can tell you details about that, but I'll tell you, that wasn't living. I was a dead man. And I look back across that, and that life is gone. That life is crucified. That life is past. And it's like I'm two different people. There's an old self, and there's a new self. And the old self has been done away with. The old self has been crucified. It isn't some personality that's just hanging around inside of you waiting to seize control again it has been gone it has been done away with all this is because of the work of Christ all this is because of what he did because he died in your place he was crucified and you united together with him in that because of that the curse of your sin, the curse of your disobedience to God, which brought about alienation from God and brought about spiritual death and brought about a a lifelessness to you because of that reality, because of the cross of Christ, that's done away with. 
The alienation from God is done away with. The spiritual deadness is done away with. The penalty, as we said, has been paid by our crucifixion with Christ, by His crucifixion for us. We're no longer guilty. We're no longer in prison. We're no longer enslaved. Just as Paul says in verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin, free from the penalty, free from the spiritual death. And as we saw last week, the word there for free is the word dikaio, which in every other place in Pauline literature is always translated justified. Is you have been justified, or we might even say acquitted. So the one who has died has been acquitted. They have been released, if you will, from the guilt of their sin. It's not necessarily saying you're released from the power in the sense that you are no longer tempted, but you're free from the guilt of sin, which frees you from the condemnation of spiritual death and spiritual separation from God. You see the the chains, the bonds, if you will, uh, of sin that used to keep hold of you, the ones that shackled you were the curse of the law. Because you were found guilty by the law, you were pronounced dead. You were condemned. And since you were dead, you were spiritually incapable of resisting the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 describes this. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. And as a result of that, you spent your life, Paul says, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You, you were basically led around as, a, as an unresponsive dead corpse. You were led around by all of those controls. You were enslaved to them. But once you spiritually died together with Christ, that curse was lifted. You were resurrected from the dead, and now suddenly you are brought to life. You experience a spiritual resurrection. You wake up, if you will, to the manipulation and the control of the world, to the manipulation and the control of Satan. And you follow what Paul's saying here. Since we died with Christ through his baptism, our spiritual death has ended. Our legal death with Christ, if you will, brought that to an end. And so spiritual death being removed, we've been raised from the dead. Now, the way Jesus illustrated this was by a seed. He pictured a seed, which, which by itself uh, appears, to be a dead, it might as, uh, uh, appears to be dead, it might as well be a rock. It is hard, it is lifeless, we might say. There are no signs of fruit or foliage or any of those things. But when you bury that seed, as, as he says in John chapter 12, when you bury that seed, and that is his, his uh, image, if you will, his metaphor for dying, what happens? The seed sprouts to life. And so this was you. This was you in a state of deadness, and you would have remained in that state of deadness except for the fact that you buried that old life. And once you buried that old life, that is what allowed God to raise it from the dead in newness of life. And so now you're no longer enslaved to that old life of sin. That brings us to the sixth reason 
Paul gives us here why you and I who are in Christ will not continue in sin. And that is because, as he says in verse 9, since death is final and the resurrection of life is continual, you know you'll never go back to a life of sin. I'll say it again just so you can register all that. Since death is final and resurrected life is continual, you and I know that we'll never go back to a life of sin. And if you've understood everything that Paul is saying here, this makes complete sense. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And he draws out this incredible truth for us, a tremendous encouragement for us between the the death of Christ and what we have experienced here, helping us to understand the finality of what has taken place in the death of Christ and the continual nature of what takes place through the resurrection of Christ. We pointed this out even last week. You need to understand when Paul says this in verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin. He's talking about a legal transaction. He's talking about a legal transaction here. He's talking, he's not saying that Christ at one point was under the power of sin, was somehow had to put to death the power of sin over his life behaviorally. What he's saying is that when he died to the penalty of sin, it was a once and for all act. It wasn't something that Christ had to do again and again and again. He doesn't need to die repeatedly to sin. And by the way, he doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again and again for you, unlike the, 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 the mass of the Catholic Church, which offers up Christ for death and for sacrifice every week. That's not what needs to take place. His death was a once-for-all reality. And it was sufficient, is the message of Scripture, That one death was sufficient to pay the penalty of your guilt, to pay the penalty of your alienation from God forever. It only had to happen once. But when he was raised from the dead, that wasn't a one-time event because he was raised to continuous life. He was raised to continuous victory. He was raised to continuous newness of life. And so what Paul's saying here is is legally, legally, we know that when we die to sin, death no longer has dominion over us. When we die to sin, we're no longer under the curse, if you will. When we die to sin, it only needs to happen one time. And all that penalty is paid when we die together with Christ. And so what happens after that? We're raised just like Christ We're raised to a continuous resurrection. We live to God forever and ever. There's no sin you'll ever commit that will outpace the grace and mercy of God that's been provided through the, the death of Christ. There's no way that you'll ever go so deep in rebellion. There's no way that you'll ever disappoint so much that God would just write off the work that Christ did. That somehow he's going to come back and require some new sacrifice. 
That somehow the, the, the penalty of spiritual death that was controlling you, that God is going to change his mind and throw you back under that condition. There's no way that you'll ever do anything, go so far, sin so much, create so much shame. There's no way that you'll ever do that if you're in Christ, which will undo the death of Christ and therefore undo the curse of Christ. And so, as a permanent reality, as a permanent reality, you are a new creature in Christ. You're resurrected to newness of life. And you'll never be alienated from him again. Paul's saying all this, of course, of Christ because he's drawing this parallel for us. We're united together with him in his death, but also in his resurrection. We are, if you will, baptized into him through all of that. And so what Paul's talking about here is this decisive break in our experience from the old life of sin and then the new life that follows the death we die to the old life, we die once for all just like Christ. And the life we live is forever. That's why it makes no sense for people to come forward during an invitation or doing a, a conference or during a revival or whatever it might be, for people to come forward over and over and over again to get saved. As if they have to die again and again and again. As if the penalty is reapplied to them as if the as if the sacrifice of Christ is 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 somehow revoked in terms of its benefit for them it makes it makes no sense for that to happen because once you die it's a once for all act and once you're resurrected it's to never ending life since the penalty has been paid it is impossible to be under that penalty again. So here you are. If you're a believer, if you're here in, today and you're in Christ and you're looking back over your life, that's what you see. You see two people. You see the one who lived before Christ and that person has been crucified. And you see the one who's living since Christ and that person lives forever. Not two Selves that are battling out within you, but two consecutive selves. One that's done away and one that lives now for God. And all that sort of brings us to Paul's ultimate point, why we as believers will not continue in sin. As he says in verse 11, since we cannot go back to the old life, we must understand ourselves dead to sin and we must understand ourselves alive for God. Or you might even say it this way, living for God. And this is ultimately where Paul applies all this rich truth. Knowing what he's just taught us, we have to consider ourselves that way. We have to reckon ourselves that way. It's actually a word for, for counting, or some people even say accounting. It's a word for calculating, if you will. We have to calculate or count ourselves as being dead. That old life is being dead. We're constantly evaluating our life and our circumstances and who we are, constantly reminding ourselves of that truth until the way of that thinking becomes integral to who we are. We're to ponder it. We're to consider it. We're to meditate on it. 
We are to count it that way. We look back at our old lives, we consider it dead. We must look back at sin and our association to it in that old life and calculate and consider that we died to it. At the same time, we equally calculate and consider that we now live to God. We belong to God. We're constantly reminding ourselves of the new reality, of the new fact, of these two consecutive selves. Understanding our old life and understanding our new life, understanding our old self and our new self, understanding we've moved past those years of serving sin, now we're serving God. Or as Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 4, arm yourself with this way of thinking. If we suffered with Christ on the cross, it was so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Arm yourself that way, he says. Arm yourself as one who was there with Christ on the cross and died when he died, And now what you are is you are living to God. I was thinking of the way we could maybe illustrate this. And and you might think of it like an old athlete who has retired. He's turned in his keys to the locker room and to his locker. He's turned in all of his equipment and everything. But when the new season rolls around, he keeps showing up to practice like he's still part of the team. He, he keeps wanting to run out into the drills. He keeps wanting, if you will, he has this inner impulse to go out there and sort of compete in the way he maybe he used to compete. And when that impulse comes, what he needs to do is remind himself he's retired. Remind himself that that old life has been put away. Remind himself that he's not a part of that team. He's got a whole new life now, a whole new set of pursuits, a whole new system of daily routines, and he gives himself to them. He died, if you will, to the game. Well, you and I died to sin. You and I died to sin, but now we live to God. And so Paul says in verse 12, let, therefore not, uh, let sin therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions and do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin shall have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace here's the exhortation here is the the application, here's the command after all that knowledge. Or interpreters would say, here, here are the imperatives after all the indicatives. And you'll notice in verse 12 how he begins, and notice in verse 14 how he ends. Verse 12, let no sin reign in your mortal body. And then down in verse 14, sin will not have dominion over you. It won't reign it won't have dominion. Paul's using, by the way, the future tense there in verse 14 in the sense of certainty. We, we, we do that all the time, right? Oh, that's not going to happen. We do that with a sense of certainty. And that's what Paul's saying. It certainly will not. Sin will not have dominion over you. And so Paul's saying here, don't let it rain because it certainly won't rain. 
We are to align our thinking with this reality. We are to begin to think of ourselves the way God thinks of us. Which, by the way, in case you haven't figured this out, that's where all Christian growth begins. All Christian growth, all Christian maturity, all Christian advancement, it all begins with knowledge. If you're not willing to sit down and to think through theology or think through passages of the Scripture, if you're not willing to sit down and understand certain truths, then you are, you are hindered, you're handicapped in terms of progressing spiritually. But if you're going to progress spiritually, you begin here. You, you make a choice to, to contemplate, to consider, to understand what Paul, what, what God, what the Scripture already says about you. And then in light of that, Paul says, you make a choice. You make a choice based on what you know. And the choice is between the one to whom you present your, what Paul calls, members. You say, well, members of what? Well, he doesn't really say members of what, but we can probably assume based on the context and based on the way Paul normally uses this word, he's talking about members of your body. Or as he says in verse 12, he refers to sin reigning in your mortal body. That phrase mortal body implies what he has in mind particularly is our physical body as opposed to our immortal body or our, our, our resurrected body. Uh, this that we're in right now is the body of our fallen state, our corrupted body, if you will. In fact, over in Romans chapter 8, Paul actually says that one day, in verse 11 of Romans chapter 8, one day the Holy Spirit will come, and the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, He will raise us also and give life to our mortal bodies. So what you're in now doesn't have life. What you're in now, this mortal body, is still, if you will, in a, in a state of deadness, or we might even say the body that you're in right now is itself still under the curse. It's still corruptible. It is still destined to die because it's still under the original curse. Your spirit isn't, but your body is. Romans 8.23 even says we groan waiting for the redemption of our mortal bodies. We're groaning waiting for our bodies to be transformed into the, the, the likeness of Christ and into conformity with our inner self because our inner self has been raised from the dead. Our bodies are simply waiting for that day. But Paul's point back in Romans chapter 6 is that while we're in this mortal body, we're not to let sin take control of this body. We're not to let sin reign, if you will, through this body. Or more practically, we're not to present the members, presumably the members of our body, as instruments of unrighteousness. That's fairly obvious, at least, at the very least, a reference to your arms, your legs, your eyes, your ears, your tongue. The parts of your body don't make them instruments of sin. It isn't just that, though. I mean, he even says in verse 12, he refers to the passions that come along with the body, the lust, the evil desires, those, all those desires that are in conflict with God. We're not to present our members to sin to obey its impulses, whether mentally or physically. Well, what does that mean? Well, it suggests that you have a choice. 
You have a choice whether or not you present your physical, mental capacities to sin or to God. It means that you have a choice whether you place your feet in a place that are going to carry you, if you will, where you shouldn't go. It means that you have a choice whether you put your eyes where they shouldn't be so that it is gazing upon ambitions and pursuits and desires that are contrary to God. That you lend your mind, your thinking, your reasoning to sinful ways. Your hands to to actions that work against the will of the Lord. Your lips, your tongues to speak in a way that's contrary to His Word. Even your heart, your affections, loving those things that don't bring glory to God. Your money to serve and to fund those things that are not for His glory. We're not to let our members serve sin. We're not to let sin be sovereign in how we use all of that stuff. I love what Robert Haldane, uh, the, the old Puritan commentator, uh, says in this passage. He helps us tremendously. He says, uh, quote, The believer must decline no labor which the Lord sets before him, no trial to which he calls him, no cross which he lays upon him. He's not to count even his own life dear if God demands its sacrifice. End quote. You belong to God. Your circumstances belong to God. Your trials belong to God. Your sufferings, your sacrifices, they're not yours. They're God's. You now live to God. You don't live to sin. You died to sin. Now you're living to God. It's unfortunate. It's not the way we tend to think. We, we tend to get into those situations and immediately our thoughts are about ourselves. Immediately our thoughts are about ourselves, which then lend itself to thoughts about sin. We look at our circumstances. We, we think that our circumstances, somehow we ought to be able to control them. We look at our trials and somehow think that somehow we ought to be able to control them. And so in the midst of all those difficulties, we're not presenting ourselves and our trials and our difficulties to God. We, we don't place ourselves under Him and under His sovereignty. What, would he, what do we do in the end during those times is we place our members as servants of unrighteousness. Paul uses these, this word instruments. Don't present your members as instruments to unrighteousness. We make ourselves in those seasons tools of sin. Weapons, if you will, of sin. And this is so essential in the battle with sin. Recognizing that not only we, but our body and all of its physicality And all of the things that it touches and all the things that it sees and all the things that it hears, our body belongs to God, not to sin. Our body and all of its members have been tools of sin with the old self, but with the new self, they are tools of God. And you are to present them in that fashion. 
And it just highlights one of the biggest causes for sin in your life and in my life, or, or we might even say one of the easiest handles by which sin often takes hold of us and controls us, which is basically self-pity. It is self-centeredness. It's those times when in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our trials, we begin to feel sorry for ourselves and we begin to, uh, to, to, to wallow around in this self-focused self-pity. And those are the times that we forget that our new self belongs to God. We face some circumstance, we face some uh, uh, some task that is challenging, we lose some freedom that once brought us comfort, some possession in which we found joy. We face difficulty with our husband who isn't treating us the way that, uh, that, that, that we want him to treat us, or our wife who isn't responding to us the way we want him to respond to us, or we're struggling in our relationship with parents who aren't dealing with us the way we would want them to deal with us. And what immediately happens during those challenging times is rather than presenting ourselves and our situation to God for His sovereign control, we present ourselves to sin. We present our members to sin. We begin to rationalize and justify an ungodly response or our sinful behavior, and we're no longer presenting ourselves to God. We're now presenting our members as instruments to go out and do sin. But as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So, Glorify God in your body. It's not your own. Or as he says here, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to Him as instruments of unrighteousness. And Paul's reason for this, verse 14, because sin certainly will not have dominion over you. Why? Why? Since you're not under law, but under grace. You're not under law. You're not under its guilt. You're not under its condemnation. You're not spiritually dead anymore. You're dead to that old life, but you're alive to God. You're under grace. And so you've been brought to that place. You've been set free from the penalty of death from the law. The old life, the old self was crucified. The new life, the new self, belongs to Him. Your challenge is not just today, but every day. When you go home, when you're on your sofa or your bed, when you wake up in the morning and you are facing the new challenges of the day, when you're facing those trials within your home, those trials within your place of work, the struggles with your parents or your children or your spouse, you realize that none of those came by chance. Every one of them came within the sovereignty of God. And that same sovereign God reigns in your life. Let Him control your responses. Present yourself to Him. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a a word of prayer and a song. But while you're standing, we don't have an altar call, but we have an invitation.
And the invitation is this. If you're here today and all this freedom you know nothing about and all this change you know nothing about. You look back over your life and your life has been nothing but a continual enslavement to the kind of forces and the kind of choices that are destroying you. Your life is one that's filled with sin. And you can't look back and say, there was that moment when I died and that old life died and I crucified it. And there was that moment when I was raised together with Christ. You can't look back and say any of that. If you're here today and that's you, we want to challenge you. We want to challenge you. If that's the case, then you stand today still under the guilt and the penalty of your sin. You stand before God spiritually dead and destined for eternal death in hell. But Jesus says this, if you want to find your life, you must first lose it. If you want to find salvation through Christ, you take up a cross and you follow Him. That's the call of God on your life today. That's our prayer that you'll respond today to that call. That today will be the day the old life dies. Today will be the day that you're raised together with Christ. Father, we're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the work of our Savior. We're grateful that by His power, we were raised from the dead, that that old life was done away with. And now, Lord, we are Yours. And although we may be sometimes drifting back, thinking of coming, if you will, out of this retirement, thinking of going back to that old life, feeling those impulses, help us to consider, to contemplate, to count ourselves as new creatures and new creatures to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that today and tomorrow and the next day by the realities of what Christ has done for us. I pray, Father, that we would see sin for the foolishness, for the enslaving power, for the condemning and, and uh, deadly force that it is. And may we present ourselves to our Sovereign who loved us enough, He gave His own Son for us, and who loves us in every way and leads us in a path of righteousness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.